good and good to you. Good evening, good evening to you. Good evening, good evening. Won't you share with a friend or two? Good evening, good evening to you. Good evening and welcome, welcome, welcome to Daring Dialogues. I'm your host tonight, Shantae Charles. I hope that you're having a great and wonderful day. We know that there has been quite a bit of things happening in the world of the audacity of caucasity. And uh, we have been detailing those things on our channels. So if you're interested in catching up, you can always go back to the posts that are on our pages, both Daring Dialogues and Black Table Talk. Also, if you're interested in joining um, our Black Table Talk group, um, feel free to hit the join button and we'll check you out. And if everything looks good with your page, we'll add you to that group. Also, if you would like to support the work that we're doing here and the messages that you want to see and hear, I ask that you hit the cash app if you would. Um, if you appreciate what we're doing on this channel and you want to support um, and you want to support as a one-time um, opportunity, you can do that. Also, if you would like to join our Patreon subscriber base only, that information is also located in the description above. Tonight, we are back in the book entitled Black Women, Black Love. America's War on African-American Marriage. And we have been learning a lot. If you've been joining us on these video segments, we're here on this page live Tuesdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So you can set your notifications, set your calendar, and meet us here on a regular basis. Um, now we are going to be taking a break uh, soon, but I will announce when that is. It won't be for another week or so. So right now we're getting ready to read about marital and familial reunification. We have been looking at um, what happened through enslavement. We have been looking at black men and black women trying to keep their families together. We have read the words of our ancestors and their own statements and their own testimonies of how they struggled to do that. Um, how their children struggled to do that. And so a lot of things that we have sort of kind of been told or taken for granted that was true, people are finding the narratives and the accounts 
themselves and they're reading what our ancestors actually had to say. Because a lot of times it's, it's posited to us as though they didn't have a voice, they didn't have their own mind, they didn't have their own thoughts, right? Um, but we're just finding that that just isn't the case and that there's plenty of documentation that shows the struggle for black love in the midst of the terror and the tyranny that was going on. So as we are covering tonight, we're going to be talking about the Civil War coming to a close. And then we're going to talk about the women and the children that began to be displaced by the loss of um, men, right, through the, the actions of the Civil War, and also um, those soldiers that had died during that time and how their wives began to try to receive assistance, but they were denied assistance in many cases. So we're going to get into that tonight and I'm going to read probably for about the next 15 minutes and then I will open it up for discussion on tonight for those of you who want to join in on the discussion piece. Marital and familial reunification. As the Civil War came to a close in 1865, the federal government encouraged and even mandated newly emancipated couples, whether previously married during slavery or not, to present themselves before an approved authority for their official exchange of marriage vows. To do so, thousands would have to locate their spouses, lovers, and children who were separated from them during slavery. This was not them saying, hey, we know that we have separated you all over and over and over and over again, and we're going to help you to reun reunify. We're going to help you to reunite with your family, right? They're not even doing that um, with the current situation that's happening in this country, right? They're not really trying to find all of these parents that they've separated from their children. So this is par for the course in American institutional handlings of people of color. It, it didn't start with what's happening now, okay? So such efforts were widespread from the immediate aftermath of enslavement to the first decade of the 20th century. And good evening to each of you coming in. When the professor and poet George Marion McClellan lauded Charles Chestnut as the best delineator of Negro life and character, he referenced the fiction writer's attention to African-Americans post-emancipation preoccupation with finding lost family members and poignantly asked, who has not sat at some time in a Negro church and heard read the pitiful inquiry for a mother or a child or a father, husband, or wife, all lost in the sales and separations of slavery times? Loved ones as completely swallowed up in the past, yet in this life they still live as if the grave had received them. So again, this whole idea and notion of uh, Black people not being family oriented, right? This is something that I have regularly heard, um, particularly from one political side over the other, that black people are just not family oriented. They don't have character and values like other people do. Absolute hogwash, hogwash. These people 
were consistently looking for and trying to reunite with people who had been separated and snatched from them. So don't let anybody lie to you about whether or not African-Americans had family values. They had them even during enslavement. Fortunately for someone like Nettie Henry, the grave did not receive her father who was plucked from her family during the Civil War and could return to his loved ones only when he was freed from bondage. She says, my pappy didn't go with us to Meridian. He belonged to one set of white people, you see, and my mammy belonged to another. He come to see us till the war started. Then his folks just kind of went to Texas and took pappy with him. But after the war, he come back to us, walk most all the way from Texas. Who is walking all the way from Texas <laughs> to go and claim their family in North Carolina? Hmm? Tell me that. Nettie's pappy was not alone. Numerous other emancipated women and men walked hundreds of miles, facing the elements, swallowing their hunger, and confronted obstacle after obstacle to reclaim loved ones lost during enslavement. In one case, a former bondwoman, Marie Johnson, received transportation from Raleigh, North Carolina, Freedmen's Bureau, to travel the remaining distance of just two counties after an exhausting trip across several southern states in search of her long-lost husband. The power of enduring love that motivated Johnson's sojourn must have touched the agent on sight in some measure. He writes, this woman states that about 15 years before the war, she was living with her husband at Tarboro, North Carolina. Each were the property of a different slaveholder. The one that she belonged to moved to Mississippi. She states that her husband is living in Tarboro, that she has walked, worked, and scuffled from West Point, Mississippi to this city, and has now neither strength nor means to go further. After explaining her story of marital separation and her desperate struggle to reunite with her spouse, the Bureau granted Johnson's wish and paid the minimal fare for her remaining journey. African Americans also used the press to advertise their search for lost spouses and family members, sometimes decades after their separations had occurred. We often hear about the uh, the press advertising the lynchings. We hear about the press advertising the escaped Negro, but we don't get a chance to hear the stories of black people in the press seeking their lost loved ones. I wonder why that is. I wonder why the narrative is so skewed. I don't wonder. In rarer cases, the press published astonishing stories of reunification, as in the, the 1891 case of Alexander Foley, a bondman from Natchez, Mississippi, you know, the Devil's Punch Bowl area, who returned to his old owner in Carrollton, Kentucky, to inquire after the whereabouts of his wife. Surprisingly, she was still residing in Carrollton, and the couple was soon reunited after decades of separation. The Foley's reunification demonstrates that black love and marriage could prevail against the odds. But for every marital reunification such as this one, many more former bondwomen died without seeing the faces and financial support of the spouses they lost to enslavement. The pension petitions of black widows of Civil War veterans tell this story well, and the story of love and marriage after Reconstruction 
will illustrate that freedom from enslavement did not necessarily guarantee black women the freedom to enjoy the comforts and benefits associated with love and marriage. Still, enslavement had a lasting effect on black love. The testimonies, letters, and wider records of the slave period suggest that very few bond women had the good fortune of remaining with their spouses for the duration of their married lives. Practically none could have been as lucky as Alnun, an enslaved Calabari woman who, in her bad fortune of exile from her West African homeland to French Guiana, was accompanied, accompanied by her husband, Quambone. Their love and union withstood the middle passage the auction block, the horrors of enslavement, for they remained married while condemned to work on the Remire estate in Cayenne, the modern day capital of French Guiana. Estate manager Jean Groupie des Marais recorded them as having the same 42 years of age in 1690 and referencing a noun remarked, she came, was bought and sold with her husband and has never left him up to the present day. Slavery delivered a very different romantic outcome for so many of our non-sisters in North America and their daughters across generations. Undeniably, powerful legacies tie the impoverished options for love, coupling, and marriage among African-American women to factors dating back to the 1960s. However, if we rely on statistical data alone, we apprehend only a fraction of what historical narratives and other contextual sources can reveal about what can only be described as America's heritage of oppressing and terrorizing not only Black people, but Black love too. Such oppression and terrorism have thrived through intersecting socioeconomic and cultural structures that were designed to protect white supremacy, structures that have either directly or reluctantly impacted African-American hearts and romantic affections beginning more than three centuries ago. Celia knew it, Margaret Garner knew it, and that is why her marriage advice transcended her own experience and spoke to African-Americans collectively. Garner said, never marry again in slavery. Her words were the opening line of a public epistle to the nation about black women's unspeakable, collective experience with love and marriage in America, an epistle that this book will continue to read out loud. Slow Violence, Chapter 2, Slow Violence in White America's Reign of Terror. The end of slavery spelled new troubles for Black love, coinciding with a four-year civil war that sowed chaos throughout a divided nation. As fugitives from enslavement and legally free black men began to enlist in the Union Army, many of their wives and children trailed behind, following them to the very camps that housed them. They were not always welcomed. The sheer numbers of roaming black bodies in search of family stability, sustenance, and protection obstructed traffic on public roads, disrupted military operations, and challenged the resources of even the most sympathetic federal officers who worried about maintaining public health and safety around their encampments. Many officials made no pretense of even trying to help the masses of black women and children who came seeking rescue. And because of that, I mean, we can trace right on into 2021 
You know, we have black women who say no one is coming to help us, right? No one's coming to save us. No one's coming to rescue us. We oftentimes have to rescue ourselves, gaining the unwanted title of superwoman. I'm not trying to be nobody's superwoman. Nevertheless, historically, when black women and children went seeking rescue, they weren't always welcome. Let's keep reading. They simply expelled them from the campgrounds, at times even denouncing the black wives of their fugitive recruits as prostitutes and loose women. So rather than it giving them the respect that they deserved as the wife, they often relabeled them and expelled them from the army campgrounds. Beyond the bounds of the camps, conditions were unforgiving. Malnutrition, insufficient clothing, disease, and emotional turmoil accompanied black wives and their children into the frigid temperatures of bitter winter landscapes where they often wasted away and died. That's not accounted for in the reparations package, by the way. Yet most still preferred taking their chances in the wild to returning to the properties of their owners. Dire consequences awaited those who returned to the plantations and awful punishments were visited on those who stayed behind. Spiteful slaveholders saddled deserters' wives with their absent spouses' tasks. So if your husband deserted and went off to the Union Army, you as the wife who stayed behind got double the work. Yeah physically torturing them as the next best option to punishing their fugitive men who were now out of their reach, and even promising to kill every woman with a husband in the Union Army. In one case, a Louisiana bondwoman named Arana was transported more than 10 miles from her home for this express purpose. Her husband, George Johnson, a regularly enlisted man, learned that in his absence, four white men came to his wife's residence and kidnapped her carried her down to the plantation of Dr. T.B. Merritt, 11 miles down the Mexican Gulf Railroad. There they subjected her to the most cruel and unmerciful treatment. The April 3, 1863 complaint describing her suffering captures the contempt defenders of the Confederacy had for bondspersons who claimed their right to life and liberty during the last days of enslavement. The overseer of the plantation, whose name is Stampley, beat her unmercifully with a stick. He afterward turned her clothes over her head and struck her 52 lashes. At the time, he was punishing her. The driver remarked, if you don't be careful, you will kill her. Thereupon, Stampley drew his revolver, pointing it at the driver and said, say another word and I'll blow your brains out. The Yankees have turned all of you in words, fools, and I intend to kill all them that I can. Kentucky bondwoman Patsy Leach's account of her ordeal after her husband enlisted in the Union Army and died on the battlefield exposes even more precisely the depravity governing the hearts of vengeful slaveholders. On multiple occasions, Leach reported, my master whipped me for no other cause than my husband having enlisted. Leach knew Wiley's reasons for abusing her because her, his verbal assaults were as stinging as his whip. He treated me more cruelly than ever. 
whipping me frequently, insulting me on every occasion. About three weeks after my husband enlisted, a company of colored soldiers passed our house, and I looked at them, searching for my husband's face in the crowd. My master had been watching me when the soldiers had gone, and I went into the kitchen. He followed me and knocked me to the floor senseless, saying as he did so, You've been looking at those darned inward soldiers. When I recovered my senses, he beat me with a cowhide. When my husband was killed, my master whipped me severely, saying he had gone to the army to fight against white folks, and he, my master, would let me know that I was foolish to have let my husband gone, and he would take it out on my back. With her infant child fastened to her hip, Leach managed to flee Wiley's fury. But in March 1865, she would seek government support to recover the four children she was forced to leave under his control during her escape. At the time of her petition, her flesh, which still displayed visible marks, evoked her sufferings at least as vividly as her pen. Meanwhile, the re-enslavement business was booming. At contraband camps, intruders regularly seized the wives, the children, and the parents of black soldiers and sold them to the highest bidders. A medical officer reporting on the state of affairs at Northeastern Louisiana contraband family camps, situated on the right bank of the Mississippi, had encountered about 10,000 women and children who having left their plantations were roving about without adequate support or protection. Many were vulnerable prey for some of the quasi agents of the government who have an understanding with the Confederate guerrillas to supply them with Negroes at the following rates a male $300, a female $200, a likely child $100. Slavery was a dying, bitter, painful death, and its end hinted at the new dimensions of suffering and trauma that would follow emancipation over the course of the 100-year reign of terror that was still to come. Across the South, the instability of social existence during America's Civil War determined what was possible for Black love and marriage. Tethered to the notion of ideal citizenship, monogamous marriage in America had long been predicated on the English patriarchal doctrine of coverture. Go look it up. Which deprived wives of economic independence and established husbands' legal authority over acquisition of property and any other contractual negotiations involving their wives. You see... Yeah, the patriarchal doctrine of coverture, you know, the doctrine that some black men are still trying to contract over their black wives, it didn't come from us. Just a little hint there. With cultural norms of their own for mating and marrying and alienation from property ownership, post-enslaved African Americans had to be initiated into these long-standing white American marriage citizenship rites of passage that were foreign to their customary stages of courtship and coupledom. Sweethearting, taking up, trial marriages, and abroad marriages would soon be supplanted by registered monogamous marriages. It was just the beginning of what would be a new chapter in America's long history of interference with black love.
Yeah. Are we really, really ready? So, the next time that we step into this reading, we'll be reading about reconstructing Black marriage and family formation. What happens to a Black family that takes on English patriarchal doctrines of coverture in which they see their wives as property? They don't see their wives as independent beings. Could that be why they keep telling black men that they need to keep their wives in line and put their wives in place and their wives talk too much and they think for themselves entirely too much? (laughs) Just be careful of whose culture you're picking up in your marriage. All right. So that is my reading for tonight. If you have a camera, I think I see Lady Barbara has a camera. You may click on the double face and I will bring you on for some conversation. If you don't have a camera, you might have to pop out and then pop back in and you should see a green camera that enables you to come on and speak. All right, we're taking uh, Lady Barbara here tonight. First, and let's see if it adds you. It says adding, so we'll see. Dum da da dum 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 dum. It's just spooling. It's not. It's not adding you, Lady Barbara. Oh, there it is. Good evening. There you go. Good evening. Good evening. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. Thank you. I, I'm good, but I'm not good. <laughs> so, Ooh, so child. the coverture, so the coverture is, um, y'all need to learn how to control y'all women. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We um. You say you don't have a camera, but I'm gonna. I see. Yeah, I see Pastor Ben. I don't see a camera for you. So, y'all forgot that we wrote this down and, and told y'all how y'all supposed to control these women. Mm-hmm. So, if you not. You're not running your house because they they just have too much mouth and they're just talking and talking. <laughs> have y'all forgot? Have y'all forgot what we 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 put this in place centuries ago, and here we are now, and y'all got all these women and all these voices. And I thought about Rachel Robertson. That man probably wants to tell Jackie that. Yeah. A wife's place. What does that say? It's by, it's by his side. And he's called what we As an easer. Is our warrior. Yeah, yeah they, 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 they uh, clearly, clearly they weren't looking for warriors. Like that's not what their doctrine teaches. And, and, and I, and this is a really good point because 
I I want to I want to talk to the black men <laughs> who are listening to white men about how to run their house. Ooh, we you better preach. <laughs> Listen, listen, listen. We don't do things the same way. I need us to understand. I'm so glad that this writer brought up the fact that they had their own doctrine for how they were supposed to run their house. In their house, their wife and children were property. This is why they didn't give them rights initially through the Constitution. So it wasn't just the enslaved that were their property. They didn't just feel that. I need us to understand this. They didn't just feel that way about the enslaved. They felt that way about their own women and children. Exactly. It wasn't no co-leadership. It wasn't no co-rulership. It wasn't matrilineal lines of rulership. And if you go look and if you go dig further back into their, their history, you will see how much opposition the queens at the time, the Queen of England and Scotland and all of that, you will see how much opposition those men gave them. Yeah. It was H-E double hockey sticks. <laughs> yeah. Because in their mind, a woman ruling was out of place. And even to this day, if you look at some religious circles, even to this day, they, they feel that way. And, and, and you should not be called prophet nor pastor. <laughs> Look at the term trophy wife. Yeah. Yeah. The majority of black women are, we not about to be no trophy. Trophy. Listen, 
we know how to look good. That that that's yes. not what I'm talking about. But just to no. be just to be sat on the shelf like a piece of an object, and to only be brought out and trotted out for specific occasions, mm-hmm. we not doing that. Not in not in 2021. So I, I thought that was very interesting that she brought up this the 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 idea, and she's gonna get into it some more that they had to break them out of their African patterns of relationship and how they related to each other and put them into a Western established pattern. What does that say? Um, And Cookie have proven them wrong. Yeah. So... Yeah, there is there is this underlying idea that the way that you all have been doing love and relationship is below our standard or our ideas of of how to go about having relationship. Yeah. And I hate to say it, but I I see it in faith-based circles all the time i see black wives trying to imitate what white women are doing in their home see we don't want to have this conversation we don't we want to talk about this for real <laughs> we don't want to talk about this for real i don't need to imitate i don't need to imitate what no white woman is doing in her home because what works over there for you don't work over here for me yeah. And then it goes back to this thing. Let us teach you because it's supposed to, we don't know how to run a house and, and, and have black love. But this right this book right here show you how people fought for black love. Some man walked from Texas to Carlboro, North Carolina. That's a journey. One woman go from where? From Mississippi mm-hmm. looking for her husband. Mississippi to Texas. Yeah. Look at so you tell and find you looking for your, your the one that you love. And you gonna tell me people don't fight for love. Yeah, but when you let other people get in your ear and begin to tell you how you should run your relationship. Yeah, that's a whole nother problem. When you allow somebody else in your business. How you should run your relationship, who you should marry, them two things right there. Who you should marry. Black men. Who are you listening to about who you should marry? What are they telling you about Black women. And I'm talking about what are black men, what are other black men telling you about black women? And what are white men telling you about black women? And then I'm going to ask you, and uh, I was getting to it. And then I'm going to ask you, whose womb did you come out of? So that womb, yeah. so that womb was good enough to bring you into the world. Uh-huh. But not Don't good for but not good for anything else. Are. 
So you had a black mama who nurtured <laughs> you, got you to where you are, and you gonna let a man of another whatever skin tone tell you who you should not marry, and then you gotta look at you still, regardless of who you marry. You came out of the womb of a black queen. So you can't let them downplay that. And again, let me just put a caveat in here because I know somebody going to listen to this and, 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 and get the wrong idea. I didn't say you cannot marry someone who looks like you. No, we didn't say that. What I'm saying is don't marry somebody who don't look like you because you have been ingrained or indoctrinated to disrespect the ones yes. who look like you. Yeah. That's right. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. If somebody I'm is in, here. if someone is in my vicinity and they're disrespecting black women. Yeah. That's a whole problem. And you can sit there. We can, we can talk about, we can talk about character issues. That's something different. Character issues, anybody can have character issues. But if you are disparaging black women simply because they are black, you and I cannot be friends. <laughs> if you are disparaging black men simply because they are black, you and I cannot be friends. We can't have that conversation. Point blank, period. That's you're right, ladies. Don't say that's a whole problem. If and you know, if your black sons, let me let me go here. If your black sons are coming home talking about they don't want no black woman, I'm gonna need you to have a conversation, and I'm gonna need you to get to the root of why they are saying that. I'm not talking about what I heard. I'm talking about what I know. I've had young black men come to me and say, my coach is telling me to have nothing to do with black girls because they're too ghetto for me. So I had to back up and say, I had to back up and say, define ghetto. What is what is it about black girls that your coach is defining as ghetto? Because if you talk about black girl, what about your mother? Bingo. <laughs> I saw for some reason I cannot see these words. I saw I saw a video where a white man got beat down by a black man because he put he put his Slap, he, he put his slap or, or he slapped the black woman. Listen, you cannot be in my space talking disrespectfully about black people. At some point, wow. at some point, we have to set the standard. Uh -huh. we, do. we do. As a black man, there shouldn't be anybody in your vicinity that you're just willfully allowing them to just pee all over. I'll use that word. Black women. Okay. Exactly. 
and I don't care if there it's another black man. At some point, you have to set the standard for what you allow in your vicinity. And a lot of the stuff that we see happening, some of the some of the disrespect we see happening is because it's not being checked at the door. Exactly. When that's understood, they know that they cannot come in your space or in your vicinity talking about, you can't talk to me about black people and run down a black person, black or green, orange, purple. You can't talk to me about black people. And I'll give you an example. I had a white neighbor who tried me and I told her, so no, we can't do that. I love my people just like you love your, may she rest in peace, she gone. But that's one thing she understood. You can't talk to me about black people. And and let me give a yeah. let me give a let me give a further example. How many of you have seen the hundreds, if not thousands, of white people online trying to find all kinds of shortcuts and loopholes to justify the recent murderer who's on trial? Now He's a straight up murderer, but they can find something, but they can find a good quality in him that they willing to defend. I just want us to understand. <laughs> so, so we have to, we have to think about it's one thing for somebody to be saying something is wrong in your character. That's not what I'm talking about. It's another thing for someone to come in my vicinity and start talking about how they can't stand black people and they start trashing black people and lumping black people into an entire group. Ma'am, sir, get out of my face with the foolishness. Don't come into my space with the foolishness. People come on this page all the time, coming in my comments saying ridiculous stuff, block, delete, I'm not even going to, I'm not even going to entertain you. No, not the foolishness, no. I'm not going to entertain it. Mm -mm. And so my thing is, we've got to establish or reestablish for some people, their, your own standards. Mm -hmm. Here's what we're not going to do. Are there, are there people who are bad actors? Are there people who have bad character? Yes. You can find them in everybody's ethnic group. But what we're not going to do is we're mean. not going to lump all black men or all black women into a category. We not doing that over here. No. So no. if that is how you roll with life, do that on your own page. Do that somewhere else because it's not going to roll here. You know, the article you read about the soldiers and the women going to the camps, right? Mm -hmm. What what they, they, instead of helping them, they labeled them trying to follow their husband as right. prostitutes. Right. Yeah. For those of you all who, who want to know what we're discussing, we're discussing Black Women, Black Love, America's War on African-American Marriage. I encourage every Black person to get this, especially Black women. So your husband runs off to the union to fight against enslavement. You show up with the kids 
and they will take your husband, learn the lesson, women, they will take your husband and use him for the fight. But they kicked the women and the children out of the camp and relabeled them as loose women and prostitutes. So they could keep using their husband's black bodies to keep fighting. Now just say law on that. That made me think back. <laughs> that made me think back to um, when I was working, there was a Caucasian woman who was dating a black guy. And she, oh, she was something. But I, one day I told her, I said, you will sleep with our men. I get that. But you don't care nothing about the black race. But you will sleep with our men. And I said, and for you, the way you operate, you want to take us back past 1865. And she looked at me, her eyes all big. But yeah, they will sleep with the black men, but they not they don't care nothing about black people. And they were talking about an incident that took place and how these people have distanced themselves after this incident in Texas. But these women are, are cloud chasers of successful mm. black men. That's what they do. Wow. Yeah. It's a long, it's a long history of this. And I think it's important for us to know what has been so that we can recognize when we see these patterns again and what is happening in our society. Currently, we're starting to see these patterns again. You're starting to see black women sort of kind of, oh, you're, you're this, you may be married to them, but we're not giving, we're not giving you the respect that is due your position in their life. And as black men, you got to be willing to say, listen, this is my spouse. You have to honor her. You have to treat her with respect. She's not a doormat. She's not a piece of property. She has her own mind. She has her own reasoning. And the and maybe that works for your household to dehumanize your spouse. Because you can't tell me that's not happening because I'm seeing too many white women talk about it. I'm seeing too many white women saying, I'm done with this. I'm done with being treated like an object. I'm done with being treated like I don't have no thoughts. I'm done with being treated like the only thing I can do is bear children. So they're having their revolution yet again. And as a black family, you have to decide how, what is going to be the culture of my marriage? What's going to be the culture of my relationship? Because we know that it's been advertised that white is right. We already know that. Yeah. But when I, when I look at what's happening and I recognize I don't want that for my family. I don't want that structure for my family. Then now I've got to go back to the drawing board and I've get, got to decide how do I want to do my relationship? And let me caveat before I say this, because I don't necessarily agree with everything um, this couple is doing, but that's one of the problems that people have with folks like Will and Jada Pinkett. Yeah. 
<laughs> People have problems with Will Smith and Jada Pinkett because they are not trying to do what is the coverture way. Not even Hollywood way. They're not trying to do the the American English doctrine of patriarchal coveture. What do you mean you forgave her? <laughs> what do you mean you forgave him? Because the um, the English doctrine of coventry and patriarchal da 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 says you kick her to the curb the first time she mess up. So yeah, people have problems with the fact that they're not doing things the quote unquote traditional way. And again, I didn't say I agreed with everything they're doing. I am pointing out the fact that is is not the rote response and when you start living life outside of that rote response people feel threatened by that because now your spouse is looking at you sideways <laughs> saying where's my grace and it's like an awakening <laughs> yeah it's an awakening it's it, it's a it's a bit of an awakening for people to say hmm let me evaluate some things of how I've been building my relationship and really ask myself, is this working for my covenant? Is how I'm doing things working for my covenant? For some people, and this is just an example, and I, and I got to go here because I got a, a client tonight, but for some people, for example, it may work for you if he is always taking out the trash and you are always in the kitchen cooking that may work for you that may work for you but if your husband is a five-star chef is that gonna make sense for you to keep going in there and burning down the house all i'm saying that's all i'm saying <laughs> Are you doing what makes sense for your covenant or are you trying to play a role to please a society that is God? I mean, why, why do you want to do that? But are you, are you trying to play to society's roles or are you doing what works for your covenant? That is the question you need to be asking yourself. Listen, if my husband is a five-star chef, I'm going to sit my happy self down. I'm going to go let him be five stars and I'm going to get him some stickers and a trophy. Okay? And let me cook. <laughs> yeah. Had this discussion two say, Sundays ahead, ago. Honey, Lord, this was a good meal. Listen. This was a good meal. What's next? <laughs> Listen. And if she enjoys taking out the trash, let her take out the trash. What are we doing? Amen. Again, do what works for your covenant. And sometimes what works for your covenant might rub other people the wrong way, but they not the person who you got to get into bed with every night. 
<laughs> Say that again. Say What you are doing in your marriage may not work for other people. It may rub them the wrong way, but they are not who you're getting up to every morning. They are not who you're turning to in the middle of the night. So do what works for your covenant. Do what works for your covenant. There are so many people divorced right now because they were doing what worked for other people to approve of them. Yes, yes, yes. They were doing what they felt other people would applaud them for and pat them on the back for. They were not doing what worked for their covenant. So I'm going to end right there. And I know somebody going to ask me what, 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 why she talking about this? Cause I'm, I'm in, I'm about to be in 22 years of covenant next year. And we started out with the, with, and we started out with the discussion that we going to do what works for us. <laughs> Amen. Oh, and by the way, if, if parental influence don't work for you, please keep your parents out of your marriage. I heard this preacher when he married this couple. He said, "Mom and them." <laughs> yeah. Mom and them. I See, love it. we'll 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 have to have a a whole marriage a marriage session, and I I have to bring some people on. But yeah, do what do what works for your covenant, and honors your Creator. Amen. At the end of the day, that's who you're answering to about your covenant. Is my spouse pleased and honored with how this covenant is going? I don't need everybody on the outside patting me on the back about what a good wife I am if my spouse is displeased and is not in agreement. So, yes. this has been another episode of Daring Dialogues Black Table Talk Edition. I've been your host tonight, Shantae Charles. I hope that I said something that was helpful, that was empowering, that was insightful. We encourage you to get this book, Black Women, Black Love by Diane M. Stewart. She is a professor currently at uh, Emory University. She has her MDiv from Harvard Divinity School and her PhD in Systematic Theology from Union Theological Seminary. She is not unlearned. All right. So get the book, get the book, get the information. Remember light is the most daring opposition to darkness. So continue to go out and be what lady Barbara? Be light. Be light. Thank you all so much. Take care and have a wonderful night.